Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Good morning. Uh, For those who don't know me, my name is Kane. I'm working the high school here. Um, I think Pastor Tim is away today having a day off. Uh, So he's given me a passage to continue on. Actually, I chose the passage to continue on this series about uh, being God's church. I want to begin with a bit of a a story. It's about two men who live in a small village. Two men got into a terrible argument, a dispute, and they couldn't resolve this dispute. So they decided to talk to the town sage, the, the elder of the town. And the first man went to the sage's home and told his version of what happened When he finished, the the elder said, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, The next night, the second man called in on the elder and told his side of the story. And the sage responded, the elder responded, you're absolutely right. Um, Afterwards, the man's wife came into the room and scolded her husband. Those men told you two different stories. And you told both of them that they were absolutely right. That's impossible. They can't both be right. And he turned to his wife and said, you're absolutely right. (laughs) Do you know when I arrived at my my first church that I was pastoring at, I was a young adults youth pastor and I was told there is a conflict happening in this church. Both churches I've actually pastored at, when I arrived, there were conflicts happening. Uh, The second one I had to deal with, even though I wasn't even there when the conflict started and was essentially blamed for the conflict uh, when a person departed from the the church, I held the door open for him on the way out. I was happy to see him go. But the first church I went to, the conflict had been going for 18 months. And the pastor said, don't get involved, just watch how it unfolds. So I said, cool. It ended with the pastor, the senior pastor in tears on the stage berating the congregation for the way they had behaved towards each other. Preceding that message, it got down to people putting uh, little post-it notes in their, you know, used to have your name in a little, what do they call them, pigeonholes, saying that you're going to hell. 18 months it went on. The origin of the actual tension or conflict was that somebody changed a day to practice for worship practice during the week and didn't tell somebody else. 18 months. A church can look pretty good on the outside, but from my observation experience, there's a lot of tension sometimes just under the surface. Uh, A lot of disagreements that can lead to, to, you know, horrendous outcomes where churches are dividing. A friend of mine did his PhD on church conflict. He said, you know, by far the majority of reasons why churches split or pastors are so burnt out over conflict, very few of those conflicts actually relate to theological issues. It's more operational issues that are happening in the church. Paul, who wrote the book of Romans to us, spends 11 chapters unfolding and explaining to us what the gospel is or the good news is. 11 chapters. 
In chapter 12, he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as living sacrifice, and as he goes on. So 11 chapters of this is what Jesus has done for us. Chapter 12 onwards is this is how it now applies, this is how it unfolds in the Christian community. And in chapter 14, he talks about what you do when you have different opinions about disputable matters in the church. What do you do? So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord, because they give thanks to God, uh, the Lord for it. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be, he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. Verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, Every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Verse 13, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your own mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. It's almost if Paul can predict what's going to happen when the church is established. Man, there's going to be issues. So chapter 14, we'll put the chapter early. Here's some instructions. You see, new Christians had gathered in Rome. And these Christians brought with them various religious and cultural beliefs and traditions. They brought a lot of baggage with them into the church. And they're not essential matters. But they were matters, matters that people were very sensitive about. And this brought a lot of tension. Like the early church, even though we all hold to the same gospel or good news, we still argue about disputable matters. And the problem is, whether we like it or not, many decisions in the Christian life don't come with an absolute yes or no answer. They don't come with a one-fits-all answer. The Bible's not a textbook guide to life. 
That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a story of God's plan fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile back to himself a fallen and rebellious people. It's not a textbook that we can flick to to answer every question we want and guide every decision in life. Its purpose is the message of salvation. So there will be disputable matters. Disputable matters, literally, in the Greek, just means opinion. That's all it means, opinion. And I guess we could, if we have to define disputable matters, it's, it's really interesting looking through the commentaries trying to find a definition. One definition, which I think was the best one, said disputable matters can be summed up as non-essential issues in the Christian life or grey areas in the New Testament which do, do not spell out clear guidelines. I mean, even that's pretty vague when you think about it. The more I've delved into scripture and reading about what people say, I don't know, but it seems more disputable matters. But what do we do? What do we do when there are disputable matters? For Paul, this whole passage really has a number one teaching principle. For Paul, we need to coexist, even with the tensions over disputable matters. For Paul, the most important thing for a church is unity and peace. And that's his key point right through Romans 14. And he goes right back to Romans chapter seven verse, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 7, where he states that. He essentially says the glue that holds the church together is its identity as those who are called by God, where God's grace and peace have been lavished upon them. So whatever happens, how much tension is there, maintain unity in the church and peace. And the Christians in Rome needed to be reminded of this, this foundational truth. Due to judgmental attitudes that seem to have developed among some of the believers there. So the first question I asked when I read through this passage is, what's happening in Rome? What are they fighting about? For the Roman believers, most of their disagreements revolved around some of the, the rules and restrictions contained in the law of Moses. Now, most people, when they hear the law of Moses, they think of the Ten Commandments. But there's actually about 613 laws across the Old Testament. Even though those in Christ have been freed from those rules and laws, there were still some doubts that lingered. For the Romans, in light of what Jesus had achieved for them, they could understand this, they could experience the fruit of what Jesus had done for them, but they still had questions like, was it wrong or right to eat meat that might not be kosher according to the law? Uh, was it right or wrong to observe special days like Jewish feasts and the Sabbaths? And you could add to that, the, I guess, the, the more uh, um, individual traditions and customs that they were used to. Now, at the time, these were very, very sensitive matters for some of the Christians, there are those who are fully convinced because of God's grace they are free to eat or drink anything they want. Nothing's unclean for them. 
Yet we see in verses 1 to 5, there are those believers who are not convinced enough in their faith yet, who do not feel a clear conscience acting outside of the restrictions they're used to. And Paul actually uses the terms uh, weak and strong in faith. Now, I don't know if they accurately actually capture what uh, the original words mean. But he calls those who are still bound, I guess, by their conscience, he calls those believers weak in faith. Now, what does he mean when he uses these words strong and weak? What does he actually mean? A fellow I studied with, his name is Michael Bird. He's a prolific writer, Christian writer, scholar. And he gives an example. Uh, he's down at Ridley College, the New Testament scholar down there. And he wrote actually a commentary on the book of Romans. He gives an example of where he would be considered strong and where he would be considered weak. I want to read you his, his example. He said, I can give you instances where I would be considered a strong Christian believer and where I might be considered a weak believer. To begin with, I enjoy a nice glass of wine with my meal, steak or pasta, or even crackers and cheese, or, in a, cold, uh, or a cold frosty beer on a summer's day. Also very refreshing. Let me add, he says, that I was raised in a home where alcohol, uh, with alcohol abuse. And I even engaged in binge drinking while I was a young man in the army. So I, quite, I know quite well the perils of alcohol consumption. Even so, he writes, I do not see any complete biblical band against alcohol. So I am a strong believer in that my convictions incline me towards the freedom to drink responsibly. Now, he says, I have some friends in America who, for many reasons, choose not to drink. Not just America, sorry, elsewhere as well. Uh, they can be a bit touchy on the subject. On the other hand, I am not always one of the strong, since my teetotaling friends also put on a great Halloween party. They dress up in funny costumes with makeup, drink tropical punch, play games, and eat lots of lollies. Personally, he said, this weirds me out because I've always regarded Halloween as a pagan festival, dark, even a tad demonic. I don't let my kids trick or treat because we worship Jesus and not Voldemort. And I refuse to dress up as a pale, pimply vampire who likes to talk about their feelings. Now, he says, why would a good Christian even want to celebrate Halloween? It baffles me. But he goes on, but deep down, I know my friends are not worshipping demons. It's just costumes and candy. But for me, he says, it's the vibe of the whole thing. It sends my spiritual radar crazy. Now, I know that on this topic, I am in the minority. And it's a minor issue. So I don't judge them for that. So here, he says, I am a weak believer somewhat sensitive to Halloween celebrations. See, the important thing, the key thing to understanding this passage is to know that the word weak does not mean inferior or deficient in any way. It means to have an overly sensitive conscience about something that other people are not bothered by. Let me say that again. It's not about inferior or deficiency of faith. That's why I don't really 
like the words that are used in the English translation. It's about an overly sensitive conscience about something that other people aren't really bothered by. And Paul says, listen, the weak are still in the faith. So he instructs those who are comparatively strong and free in their faith to be mindful of the sensitivities of others in the congregation. Though not fully convinced of the freedom that they do have, they should still be, he says, fully accepted into the church. Learn to coexist. Don't sacrifice in unity and peace over what, when compared to the gospel itself that I've just explained to you in 11 chapters, don't let disunity and fights erupt over things that are in comparison to the gospel trivial. So the first principle that Paul talks about and gives to us this morning from this passage is this. Everyone has the right to have their own convictions over disputable matters. Everyone has the right to have their own convictions over disputable matters. Let each one, he writes, be fully convinced in their own mind. Can they change their mind? Of course they can. But let them be fully convinced in their own mind. And this principle is basic to dealing with disputes. Whatever course a person chooses, when it comes to disputable matters, let them be fully convinced of it, writes Paul. In their mind, this is how Jesus wants them to think about this issue and to act concerning this particular issue. So you can see that days and diets are not the issue here. The real issue is whether what is being done is being done to the Lord or not. Their actions shouldn't be directed by convention or simply because other people do them, but because in their relationship with Jesus, they have thought through these issues and have reached the conviction for them at least, this is the right thing to do about this particular issue. As Christians, it's important for us to have our own convictions about disputable matters. And definitely share your convictions with others, your thoughts, when you are asked. However, don't let it eat you up inside if a fellow Christian doesn't share your convictions or your thoughts on a disputable matter. Furthermore, no matter whose faith is deemed stronger or weaker, neither group, said Paul, should pass judgment on the other. God has welcomed both groups into his family and therefore you should act and respond accordingly. None of them, no one here is the master of another. Only Jesus Christ is your master. Only his opinion and his direction counts regarding disputable matters. Only Jesus is a Christian's master. So the second principle Paul gives us is a reminder. You are, not, you are not to judge according to the preferences of others. Let me rephrase that. You are not judged according to the preferences of others. 
but in your personal relationship with your master, Jesus Christ. And an element that Paul brings into this discussion in chapter 14, a key element is that we have no place to judge others. Why? Because he said one day, every one of us, individually, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our only master. Everyone will stand before the seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, as an individual. And you are to respond to him based on your relationship with him. A judgment day is coming for Christians when Christ will examine all of our works and he will determine which of our deeds are worthwhile and which are worthless. Now, don't panic about this. Our salvation in Christ is secure. It's not about that. This is actually found, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there's a different word used there by Paul when he talks about this judgment in contrast to other judgments. Though our salvation is secure, each one of us will give a personal account of ourselves to Jesus Christ for how we use our gifts, and our abilities, our time, our, our wealth, etc. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And at that judgment seat, it's, which is more akin, I like to think of it as a graduation service, believers are rewarded or not rewarded based on how faithfully they served their master, Jesus Christ. Paul writes, the servant is responsible to his master only. You know this. So it is with the Christian in regards to God and disputable matters. So let's leave them to their own opinion if they disagree with you because they will need to give an account to the only one who matters and that's to Jesus. So stop passing judgment on one another. However, Paul doesn't stop there though. He goes on. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. If anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it's unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love towards that brother or sister. So consequently, the third and final principle he gives us is merely having the freedom to do something doesn't make that action acceptable at all times. Don't do anything that causes another Christian to stumble by encouraging them to violate their own conscience. If their conscience stops them from doing something, if they have an overly sensitive conscience about the issue, don't push them to violate their conscience. That's what Paul is saying. Instead, the stronger one who has, feels that they have freedom in Christ should actually work at promoting peace, unity, and building up the church instead of tearing it down. So don't push something in the face of somebody who is overly sensitive about it. At the same time, though, those who have tighter convictions, those who are more sensitive about things, the opposite is true. Those who have the freer, or, or, sorry, those who are the weaker and have, are sensitive about things and have certain, a certain stance on 
particular issues, you also then have the authority to put your restrictions on others who are more free in their expression of Christianity. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10 and and 1 Timothy chapter 4. But essentially Paul is saying, look, you don't have to share every opinion. Diversity is good when it comes to disputable matters because you, for me, you can learn from each other. That's the positive I take. When it comes to disputable matters, having an opinion that something is wrong for you doesn't automatically mean that act is wrong for other Christians. They may not be as sensitive about the topic as you are. But the key here, as Paul says, both parties, whether you're overly sensitive or not about a particular issue, do not judge one another or treat another Christian disdainfully over disputable matters. And he says in verse 10. All Christians, he said, let me just sum up this morning, should keep disagreements about non-essential convictions and practices between themselves and God and instead use their freedom uh, or holier-than-thou attitude You know, don't use this sort of holier-than-thou attitude to rub it in the face of others who disagree with you. But we should actually humbly choose not to offend a brother or sister in Christ. Now, that might be hard for some people, depending on your personality. Some people like like a good argument or a good, you know, a good old, a good old fight. But we've got to be mindful of who we are in Christ and let that guide uh, how we act in those circumstances. Paul says, let us us make every effort to do what leads to peace. Romans 14. So in the areas of freedom, establish your own convictions, but remember you're not permitted to judge or ridicule those who do not share share those convictions with you. And if you want to read on from verses 14 to 21, Paul actually then unfolds, I think, the best way to respond when we have differences and there are tension and that is in the context of love. So he actually goes on to explain how the law of love overrides everything else, and that is a context and guidance for us there, which he has demonstrated in his life as well. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, there are tensions and disagreements, even among Christians. Uh, That is, I guess, part of being fallen, It's also part of our, we are not uh, infallible, we are fallible and sometimes our interpretations on things are a little different uh, but we know that you have all answers to every question we have. Sometimes we can get those wrong ourselves. We pray that when there is tension and disagreement over disputable matters, uh, the gospel will come to the forefront. That we would be focused on what you have done for us and reconciling us to yourself through the work of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that that costs. Help us to love others, uh, to share our beliefs and our thoughts concerning disputable matters, but also to be gracious and respectful in the manner in which we do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.